0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well good morning Springs Church. Welcome everybody. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Thank you for all of you who are here in the room and thank you for those of you tuning in online. We miss you and I want to welcome you as well. Visitors, we're always trying to give you a shout out and say that we're grateful that you're here. We're really, really glad that you've chosen to be with us, and if you will allow us to get connected with you, we would be honored by that. You can help us do that by filling out visitor cards. They're in the lobby, and there's also digital copies online that you can find by scanning the QR code in your Sunday sheet which should also be out in the lobby, so you could just grab the physical digital card, digital visitor's card as well. But we are grateful that you're here with us, that you've chosen to gather with us, and we hope that you'll take the next step in your relationship with Christ to grow with him and with us, because we believe that we've been called to go into all the world with the good news of Jesus. And so I want to also invite you to gather with us next Sunday as well, because we'll be starting four weeks of a season we do here at the Springs called Advent. So if you haven't heard of Advent before or celebrated it, it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so the word Advent simply means arrival. And this is a time when we as the church abroad celebrate the first arrival of God in Christ in the incarnation. And we also look ahead to God's arrival in Jesus Christ in the second coming. So I hope you'll join us this year. We're going to be focusing on Advent, the love of God. And we'll be kicking that off next Sunday, November 28th. So I want to invite you to be with us that Sunday morning. But we're finishing up James today. We're in our seventh sermon in the letter of James, Wisdom from Above. And so we're going to be finishing out this morning in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks once again for gathering us here, for calling us to worship you, and for blessing us with your word. God, we ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, the eyes to see your truth, and the courage and will to put it into practice. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Ben talked early in this sermon series about a Christian named Shane Claiborne. Maybe some of you are familiar with him. He's a Christian that I really, really admire as somebody who is passionate about putting into practice the words and the teachings of Jesus. He's spent a lot of his life working with the poor in Philadelphia in his church community called The Simple Way. He's been a a global peace advocate in war-torn areas, and he even spent a little time working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta before she passed away. And there's a chapter in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, where he talks about Christians and wealth and finances, and he starts with this little story about his friends going to chat with some wealthy Christian businessmen, and they're out talking to them about what it means to be the church, what it means to follow Jesus with our money, with our resources, and he says one of these businessmen said, yes, I, I too have been thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, and so I had this made. And he's got a WWJD bracelet. Remember that? What would Jesus do? And this one, however, is custom-made 24-karat gold. And Shane writes at the beginning of this chapter, he says, maybe each of us can relate to this man. Both his earnest desire to follow Jesus and bound up in the materialism of our culture his distorted execution of that desire. I love getting to be one of your preachers here at the Springs, I love working with Ben, and I love that my job affords me the opportunity to spend time in scripture every week. And I gotta confess this morning that the more time I spend in scripture, the more time I spend in the Old and New Testaments, in the teachings of Jesus, the more I struggle with my relationship between Jesus, money, and me. The more time I spend in God's word, the more I struggle with God's radical call placed upon us, his people, in terms of the wealth and the resources that we have. And in the back of my mind, there's a question. Maybe it's a question that you've asked as well, And that question is, what are we going to do about it? In other words, what would Jesus do? Or to tweak it, what would Jesus have us do? That's the question I want in the back of our minds as we launch into James chapter 5, verse 1 this morning. He says, come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. What an outrageous verse. <laughs> this passage is so intense. Right? I think a lot of us, a lot of non-Christians, probably Christians as well, are surprised to come across this in our Bibles. Right? It's, it's really extreme. You know, what a way to start out this kind of conversation. But as surprised as we might be, we also probably shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be shocked if we've been paying attention to all of Scripture, if we've been reading the Minor Prophets, if we've been reading the whole book of James where he's been talking about the rich and the poor being exalted and the rich being demoted. He's talked about not showing partiality to the wealthy. And here, the gloves finally come off. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. And I think living in North America, the year of our Lord, 2021, is an interesting time and place to read this passage, right? Because we find ourselves in a world that is just very wealthy. A lot of people have a lot of resources in our world. It, it seems to be growing in that direction more and more and more. For instance, if you go back even just 30 years In 1987, there were 140 billionaires in the world, and they had a grand total of about 300 billion amongst them. Fast forward, we've got about 2,153 billionaires today with a combined worth of $8.7 trillion. That's pretty striking even taking inflation into account. There's just a lot of wealth going around and and a lot of really, really wealthy people. And none of us in here are billionaires. If you are, you're really doing a great job of hiding it. (laughs) And we want to know if you are. (laughs) But we do live in America... And I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just telling you what you've already heard your whole lives, that America is a country with a lot of resources, a lot of power. And uh, if you haven't been here for Ryan Jones's adult Bible class these last few weeks, really, really good stuff. I haven't been able to be in person, but I've been catching up online, and I suggest you do as well. Some wonderful things, and Ryan's been talking about how, you know, Poverty is more than just material, it's relational as well. And and I loved a few weeks ago how he talked about the fact that when it comes to like lower, middle, upper class, probably most of us would identify as middle class, maybe even regardless of where we actually fit in there economically speaking. But when it comes to our, our relationships, our opportunities, our jobs, just general prosperity, this is a pretty wealthy room full of people, right? Generally speaking, this is probably a room with quite a few resources at our disposal. So that's the context I want us to keep in mind as we stay in James chapter 5 this morning. Because he continues in verses 2 and 3. He says, your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. You might recognize that moth and rust language, right? We're hearing those Sermon on the Mount echoes once again where Jesus, who says in Matthew chapter six, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James and Jesus focus on this temporary, deficient nature of our material possessions temporary and deficient nature of our money and our stuff, right? We know that it breaks down, it wears out. But I think oftentimes our solution to that, rather than learning to practice contentment or to try and wean ourselves off of consumerism, is to just get the next thing, right? We're almost not attached to our stuff. We're detached to it. We just keep piling on more and more. If, if you're like me, you've been in that Verizon store, you've been in the Apple store holding the phone that two, maybe one year ago actually was the newest, best, brightest, beautiful thing. And now I'm trying to trade it in to get the next newest, best, brightest, beautiful phone with three camera lenses instead of two. Right? And then I know that I'm just going to be there in another year or year's or two time. Right? We, we try to fill this hole of the stuff that breaks down by just getting more and more and more stuff. And we do the same with money. Right, We, we stockpile. We amass. And we do that partly, I think, because of what we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember, I have, therefore I am. That's kind of the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of scarcity. When I have more, I am more. And so I need to amass and collect and hang on to it. You might remember that strange story that happened right at the beginning of the pandemic. Remember there was that guy in Tennessee. He takes a 1,300-mile road trip, buys 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer, and he hits every mom and pop, hole in the wall, backwoods dollar store, cleans out their inventory, gets it all, stockpiles it, puts it on Amazon, and tries to charge $70 a bottle at the beginning of this global health epi- epidemic. And I remember being, you know, outraged by that story and thinking, wow, how could you do that? You know, and he was, of course, He was, you know, gouging, price gouging, which is illegal. But looking back, there's another voice in my head that wants to say, wasn't he kind of just doing what our economy has basically taught him to do from day one? Isn't that basically the way that our culture is told that things operate? Get more and more. Economics 101, buy low, sell high, strike while the iron's hot. Isn't that basically the way the world works? But James says that gold and rust is evidence against you. James says there's a different way. And he continues in verse four. He says, listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields Which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James makes it a little more complicated for us this morning because he basically tells us that it's not just about the stuff that we get and what we do with it. It's also about how we get it. Right? He says. You've held back these wages that belong to the laborers, unfairly held it back. And he's drawing from Deuteronomy, where this is, of course, illegal. And Deuteronomy says those wages, those laborers, they're going to cry out to God, and he's going to hear. Right? And I hear echoes of even Genesis 4, where Abel's blood is crying out from the ground after Cain has killed him, right? It cries out, and God hears it. Thou shalt not steal is closely tied with thou shalt not kill. Especially when what's being stolen is the livelihood of someone, is the living wage. So James tells us that it's more than just what we have. It's also what we do with it and how we get it. And I think this is helpful because one of the ways that we typically think about wealth as Christians in America is through stewardship, right? Stewardship is kind of the primary way that we think about it. There's a phrase, you know, make all you can, give all you can. And that's good. That's a good phrase. Stewardship is important. If you've got the gift of making money, make all you can, give all you can. Amen to that. But I think James tells us that there's a little bit more at play as well, that it matters how we make all we can. It's easy for us to, with that phrase, make all you can, just kind of sneak in our society's obsession with the bottom line, right? our obsession with maximizing profits above all else, all other responsibilities. Make all you can, give all you can is good. But we need to make all we can justly and give all we can. Make all we can justly. And I think James might even say, give more than you think you can. Give more than you maybe even think you should or could. Because we should give all we can. We should give all that we can. And I think one of the things that James and the rest of Scripture ignites in our mind is this question about what exactly is my stuff and how exactly is it mine? That's another question I think Scripture poses to us. Are our ideas about private property our ideas or God's ideas? Because God seems to have some interesting ideas about property in Scripture. Have you noticed that? Like going all the way back to Leviticus even. If you think about Leviticus 25, we've mentioned before the year of Jubilee. This year every 50 years when the property that you have, it's actually supposed to go back to the original owner every 50 years. And then if you go back a couple chapters in Leviticus 23, it actually tells farmers that they're not allowed to maximize the profits from their entire fields. They have to leave the corners. The corners belong to the landless poor. A couple chapters before that, Leviticus 19, it actually tells the people who are gathering the crops, they're picking up the sheaves. It says if you drop those sheaves... They don't belong to you. That also belongs to the poor. You drop a sheaf, it's not yours. It belongs to the poor. As Peter Lighthart says, gathering dropped sheaves was stealing from the mouth of the hungry. So you see, God has some interesting ideas about property. I'm grateful for private property rights. I think it helps us, it helps our society function. But God wants to challenge that. First of all, because it all belongs to God, as we know, everything's a gift from the Father of heavenly lights, as James 1 says. It's all on loan from Him. But also, maybe not all those zeros in my account belong to me. I wonder if some of the zeros in my account actually belong to the poor? What if some of those zeros are dropped sheaves? In fact, one of the great Christian preachers of the first few centuries of the church, St. John Chrysostom, he said this in a sermon around 388 AD, he said, not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor, and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth But theirs. That's pretty provocative. And that might sound kind of harsh to our ears, but does it really sound any more harsh than James chapter 5? And James continues in verse 5. He says, You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, there's probably some of us here that really do struggle with greed. Like, maybe that's our number one sin. Some of you, us here, probably all of us struggle to some extent with greed, just being the broken, fallen, sinful human beings that we do. But I also don't want us to, to rail against a straw man this morning, because this church is filled with generous people. I know personally, because I've benefited from your generosity. This, this church is filled with really generous people and I also think that this isn't just this isn't a room full of Scrooge and Marley's you know we're not just driven only by greed I think a lot of us we're really driven in fact by responsibility right we want to be thrifty we want to be responsible with our funds I think Proverbs tells us to do that we want to plan for the disasters that will befall us we know that bad things do happen and we need a way out of that And so I think a lot of times our amassing, our stockpiling, comes from responsibility. Maybe from a good place. And there was another old Christian monk from the first few centuries of the church who also had some thoughts about this. His name was Evagrius of Pontus. And he wrote this 1,600 years ago. He said, avarice, greed, suggests a lengthy old age inability to perform manual labor, famines that will come along, diseases that will arise, the bitter realities of poverty and the shame there is in accepting goods from others to meet one's needs. He says, we're worried about the future. We're worried about tragedy. We want to be ready for that. That's good. But I think what he sees through and what he wants to warn us against is those moments those expenditures, those postures with our resources that seem to be responsibility but they're really just greed in a costume. I think he wants to warn us against greed walking through the door that responsibility unlocked. I think he wants to teach us not to worry so much. Isn't that what Jesus said, after all, in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Maybe you think Jesus and Evagrius are being unreasonable. But Jesus is trying to remind us of the kind of actual security that he's put in place for us. Because I think we amass in order to be secure, in order to be safe, in order to keep us and our children from harm. But Jesus wants to remind us of what he's actually put in place. Community. Community is what Jesus has given us to take care of us if we actually belong to a community of people that take seriously the words of James, that believe true and undefiled religion is care for orphans and widows, if we actually belong to a community that doesn't just say, be warm and well-fed, go on your way, but actually puts our faith into practice, we know we're going to be taken care of. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray for daily bread. Daily bread. Because a community saved and gathered by him is a community that can rely on each other. Stanley Hauerwass says, followers of Jesus have been given all they need in order to learn to depend on one another on a daily basis. Without the community that Jesus has called into existence, we are tempted to hoard, to store up resources in a vain effort to ensure safety and security. Of course, our effort to live without risk not only results in injustice, but it also makes our own lives anxious, fearing that we never have enough. Living in a community that prays for daily bread is how we learn to rely on each other. It's how we remind ourselves that it's all God's. It's how we remind ourselves that the corners of the field belong to the poor. It's how we remind ourselves that the God who gives all good gifts cares for us. I've been thinking this last week about what it might be like if the author of James were here with us this morning it would be something to take James out to lunch after church and we'd get to express what his letter means to us and just tell him how wonderful it is and challenging and great and the way it's bolstered our faith grateful that he's written these words inspired by the Holy Spirit and I have to kind of wonder if James might sit back and say oh you, you like my letter that's great what have you done about it? You, you like my words; they they strengthen your faith. Show me. Show me. Do something. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually said, "One act of obedience is better than one hundred sermons." It's humbling to admit. One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. He said this when his students in Germany in the 30s were basically worried about the German national church that had been co-opted by Nazism. And his students were saying, you know, we're going to stay in the church. We'll, We'll preach sermons from within and we'll change it from within. And Bonhoeffer said, no, 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 no. One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. Church, I don't know what that one act of obedience is for you, but I want to encourage us all to actually take it. Actually do it. If you need to put a reminder in your phone right now, actually take one action to rely more on the God who gives us and teaches us to pray together for daily bread to rely more, to to give even to the point of risk, to give to the point of hurt, to give in the way that actually leaves us out in the open, dependent on each other and dependent on the grace of God and Jesus Christ. This is not a works righteousness sermon. It's only by grace that God gives. It's only from the place of salvation in Jesus through the cross and the resurrection gathered as this community that loves him and loves one another that we can actually be a church who takes the words of Jesus, the words of James, seriously. Let's have faith and let's do something about it, church. Let's stand and praise the Father of heavenly lights who gives all good gifts.